This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we welcome back Esteban Rumors of NetApp and David Talby of John Snow Labs, as well as introduce our new guest, Lisa Hines, to dig a bit deeper into how natural language processing impacts health insurance providers. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp. I love this company. Zipor. Zipor. I love NetApp because it's so funny. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm here in the studio and with me today I have a few special guests to talk to us about uh, some AI things, some healthcare things, as well as some natural language processing things. Um, we've, we've done a show on this before uh, with this gentleman from John Snow Labs, and this is another uh, exploration of that topic. So with us today, David Talby is here. David, if you could refresh our memory, what you do and how to reach you. Hello, Justin. Thank you for uh, having me back. Uh, my name is David Albi. I'm the CTO at uh, John Snow Labs. Uh, my team builds uh, Spark NLP and the Spark NLP for healthcare. So we, we provide state-of-the-art natural language processing libraries to the healthcare and uh, life science industries. And uh, yeah, today, I'm, I'm hoping to talk about some of those use cases. All right. Excellent. Also with us today, we we brought uh, Esteban Rubens along as well. He's often on these healthcare-related podcasts, and uh, he's always good about bringing us the guests. So Esteban, what do you do here at NetApp, and how to reach you? Thanks, Justin. I'm part of the healthcare and life sciences team, now the industries team, and I focus on AI and cloud, mostly in healthcare. All right. How do and, we reach you? Uh, you can reach me at esteban.rubens at netapp.com. That's E-S-T-E-B-A-N. R-U-B-E-N-S or on LinkedIn as usual. All right. Excellent. We also brought a new guest with us today. Uh, Lisa Hines is here. So Lisa, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? How to reach you? Sure. Thank you, Justin. I'm part of the team at NetApp that Esteban is on. So we are part of NetApp's industry solutions team focusing on healthcare and life sciences. And I particularly... Um, and more specific in that I focus on public sector healthcare. And I can be reached at lisa.hines at netapp.com and on LinkedIn. All right, excellent. And occasionally you'll hear some some noise in the background for the for there with Lisa. Uh, it's a little baby. Don't worry. Don't be alarmed. <laughs> it doesn't bite. Thank you. I don't think it even has teeth yet. Does it does it even have does the baby have teeth yet? No teeth. No okay, teeth. good. So Apparently if the no baby hair. bites, we're fine. All right. Uh, so we're here to talk about uh, NLP and John Snow Labs again. Um, and you know, to, just before we start talking about the topics that we're talking about today, um, let's talk about John Snow Labs and what that is. So, David, give us that, that rundown again of what John Snow Labs is and does. Gladly. Uh, so, uh, John Snow Labs is a is a software company. Uh, we we provide uh, first of all the Spark NLP library. Uh, Spark NLP is a is a software library for for Python, Java, and Scala. Uh, that for the past four years has been the, the most widely used NLP library in the enterprise uh, globally and uh, even outside healthcare. Uh, the library provides implementations for uh, well over 50 different NLP tasks from uh, uh, the kind of simple traditional ones like tokenization, automatization, part of speech tagging, name entity recognition, text classification to the more interesting kind of newer ones like you know, question answering, uh, translation, summarization, uh, emotion analysis and, and, and other kind of uh, uh, facts and, and information that people are looking to extract from free text. 
Uh, it supports uh, more than 200 languages and comes with more than 5,000 pre-trained models that are ready to use. On top of the, the open source library, uh, we, we have two software products. Uh, one of them is uh, Spark NLP for healthcare and the other is Spark OCR. Spark NLP for healthcare is, is widely used between, within the healthcare and life science industry by the direct NLP industry survey. It's, it's kind of used by 59% of the kind of AI teams in, in healthcare and life science. And, and its goal is to provide the industry with, with really with state-of-the-art clinical and biomedical NLP. Uh, and, and, the, and the way we define it, uh, it means that we, for us, we will not be beat on accuracy. Uh, we have a set of, uh, and, and by state-of-the-art, we mean it in the academic sense. We have a set of peer-reviewed papers uh, where we, uh, we show accuracy on a standard, widely competitive uh, academic benchmarks in kind of you know, public, peer-reviewed, reproducible uh, papers. Uh, and uh, our goal is to provide the industry with, you know, with the production grade, scalable, trainable implementations of those new you know, deep learning, transfer learning uh, algorithms. Um, software has been used by a majority of the large pharma companies uh, that, that have many use cases from you know, real-world evidence to uh, supply chain optimization, right, to address event detection. Uh, several of the uh, larger uh, U.S. healthcare systems, so those that have in-house data science team, like Mount Sinai, Casa Permanente, Providence Health, uh, Sharp Healthcare, and others, uh, and uh, several dozen software companies in the health IT space from you know, the big ones like you know, Humana and, and Optum and McKesson to, uh, to startups uh, that are uh, looking to add the ability to understand either clinical notes or biomedical text to their, to their software. Okay. So Esteban, you know, you brought all this together. And last time on, on episode 318, we talked about natural language processing in general. Um, what, are we, what are we trying to get to today? Are we trying to show some value in the, the actual technology? Are we trying to give, give use cases? What are, we, what are we trying to accomplish here? Great question. Yeah, I want to focus on a very specific use case involving payers, the insurance companies that actually pay out the claims that the providers generate, at least uh, in our healthcare system in the U.S., there's a lot of private, of course, there's government healthcare as well, Medicare, Medicaid, and all over the world, regardless of whether the payers are private or, or public, we're moving from the more traditional fee-for-service model to a value-based model. So the, the fee-for-service model is where the providers will do things, will provide different services, interventions, tests, uh, anything, really anything that happens with a patient, whether it's physical therapy or surgery or an office visit or imaging or really any number of thousands of things that then get paid. Well, that I think the consensus is that it contributes to the rising costs of healthcare. And Lisa can, I'm sure, add to that because she's been on the, the provider side and has seen that. So Lisa, is, is that an accurate representation, do you think? Yeah, I mean, traditionally, healthcare has been in that fee-for-service model where um, healthcare is a reactive model, in, in my opinion, because you present um, and a service is provided and a fee is charged. And so what we are trying to do is transition um, to quality versus quantity. 
and um, move the value up in that healthcare delivery process, keeping individuals well um, and keeping individuals so that they present in the right venue of care. Um, and a good example would be chronic disorder that is not managed well and a patient presents in the emergency department, which is one of the most expensive venues of care that there could be. Um, so keeping them out of the ED and keeping patients out of the inpatient setting um, and making sure that um, conditions, chronic conditions are treated proactively, connecting them to all of the factors that impact their health. And so that's moving to a value-based model. What is it that a provider does that brings value to that quality of life for that individual um, and not just providing care? And, and this completely um, aligns with the quadruple aim, reducing the cost of care while improving the overall population health and improving that patient experience. No patient wants to show up in the emergency department. Um, not a good, good experience, um, especially if you are managing a chronic illness. The emergency department should be for an emergency and a chronic illness should not present itself as an emergency. It should be managed. And just... To round it off, the, the reason we are talking about NLP in this context is that we have so much data in the electronic health record that is has become the standard really pretty much worldwide, certainly in North America, in Western Europe, in Asia, and most parts of the world. If not uh, already the case, it's going in that direction. So being able to extract meaning from all that data, the unstructured data in the EHR. Of course, there's a lot of structured data, but the, all these clinical notes, all the, the reports, there's so much language. There's plain language. There are notes and things that people are writing or, or dictating that have a, a lot of relevance for both the care of patients and the stratification in terms of risk uh, for both the payers and the providers. And that's where NLP comes in. And where we come in is the data layer that is feeding those NLP algorithms. So that hopefully it's not too kind of super specific, but that that's what I would like to, to talk about today. Okay. So let's, let's dive a little bit more into that. So let's talk about the overall idea of this insurance payer and payees and that sort of thing. Like, can we talk about that process, how that works and why something like a nat natural language processing aspect to that would help? So uh, if, uh, if you're a payer uh, or, or if you're you know, an ACO or, or really any, any entity within the healthcare space is basically taking on the risk of managing patients, the, the most basic question that you have is you need to know really for, for a person, really how, what is the level of risk? Uh, how sick are they? Uh, because they directly impacts in many cases the, the revenue that you get from whoever is uh, kind of you know uh, paying to manage that patient uh, and also it's important to know what what you actually need to do in terms of preventive care for that person uh, so uh, knowing whether someone is uh, you know, is diabetic uh, is smoking uh, has a potentially undiagnosed kidney disease undiagnosed depression uh, maybe you know beginning of a coronary heart disease uh, right, really, the, the the set of 
clinical risk factor or social determinants uh, that, that have a major impact on people's uh, health and quality of life. Uh, I mean, those are facts that are critically important to know. Uh, and uh, and the challenge is that uh, in many cases, uh, a, a lot of this data is really only available in free text. Mm. Uh, yeah, um, Lisa, do you want to take it from here? Yeah, David, I'd be very interested because my experience has absolutely been that um, even when we have sat with a group of clinicians and um, we talk about the need to capture certain data elements, while EMRs can drive consistency in data capture and standardization, you know, we still find that the kind of Q&A verbal interaction communication that a patient has with, you know, the nurse when they are doing a pre-assessment prior to a visit, um, things that are captured in operative notes, things that um, were observed about a patient's behavior, um, all those things just don't have a structure at home in an EMR. So I'd be love to hear from you this NLP model, um, where, what types of documents are used um, and, and where are you finding, I'm going to say these nuggets of clinical information that is relevant to um, identifying risk? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, I mean, in, in for this use case, really, we look mostly at, at, EMR, at EMR data. So we're looking at, at the office visit, the admission notes, discharge notes, progress notes, uh, post-surgery notes. Uh, really reg- regular kind of you know, checkups and summaries. Uh, really, any, any kind of free text note uh, that's within within the EMR. Sometimes you even have things within your medication, right? Where people talk about allergies or cost issues, right? Or other things that are happening in their life. Um, and uh, what the software can do automatically, and uh, really right now fairly well in, in many cases as, as well as people in terms of, uh, of f- accuracy, is uh, first of all to understand extract uh, medical entities. Right, so uh, symptoms, diagnosis, drug, devices, uh, uh, social determinants of health, lab results, and so on. It can put them in context uh, in the sense of uh, uh, knowing whether I'm, I, I'm talking about something that is happening, is, is not happening, might be happening, right? So be able to tell between, you know, patient is diabetic versus patient is not diabetic versus, uh, you know, patient shows symptoms of diabetes, right? So that's a maybe, or, you know, patient's father was diabetic, so that's family history. Uh, right or, or you know sometimes uh, there's difference between present and past. Another thing the software can do is uh, automatically find semantic relationships. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, for example, uh, you know, am I taking this medication because I had a symptom, or did the symptom start after I started taking the medication? Right, those are that's that's a very important thing. If you look in the radiology report, uh, one one critical thing is to be able to associate dates. Right, so maybe five or six dates within the report. I need to know, okay, what is the date of the diagnosis, the date of the test, right, the next of the next stage of operation, uh, when did some maybe you know, start some treatment, right, like chemo or something. Uh, so being able to to correlate uh, 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 times, right, what happened before what, uh, being able to correlate, you know, body parts and procedure, you know, which kidney did we operate on. Uh, so so a lot of that can now happen, uh, can happen automatically. Uh, and, and really, we, we see it as a necessity, uh, really for, for two reasons. One is, is as you noted, Lisa, uh, yeah, not, not, not 
there's a lot of clinically relevant information, but we're just there is no structured field for. Uh, really, because there's just kind of just too much complexity, and really mm-hmm. each patient is different, right? Uh, and and sometimes uh, uh, you know, for like for example, one one common thing is, and one common thing you actually care about when you're doing patient stratification is undiagnosed conditions. So what if you have, if you have a patient and you know the, the, you don't have a diagnosis of you know depression, right, or kidney disease, but but you suspect it, right? You think there's a risk, right? Uh, those are the kind of things you would put in pretext, right? Uh, or uh, very often things that are not billable are not recorded, right? So that that's one set of issue. Uh, but, but I think another issue that, that's of equal importance is uh, we, we have put so much documentation burden on, on clinicians, right, that uh, uh, it's taken so much of their time and it's really, it's, it's a cause for burnout and an issue for the industry that we, 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 we cannot continue down that path, right? So we, we cannot keep asking clinicians to fill in, you know, more forms and more fields and more combo boxes, right, to get as specific as possible. And the other thing that, that NLP technology enables you to do is kind of shift that balance to come and say, okay, no, you, you could actually move back to writing it the way you want to write it, and we'll, we'll figure it out from there, right? And technology will, will do more of the, you know, will go more of the way. Uh, so, so that's, I think, another uh, very good direction for the industry to take. So I, I was just uh, interested in interjecting for a second here. Do you think that the, the, and Lisa mentioned this before, the, the quadruple aim, and one of the aims in the quadruple aim is improving uh, joy in the profession for for clinicians, and that's tied to burnout. Obviously, you were mentioning that it was untenable before the pandemic, and now with the pandemic, it's a disaster. Something like one in three nurses have quit, and about 20% of doctors are saying they're going to quit or already have quit. So there was a movement even before the pandemic towards scribes, whether human scribes or electronic scribes, right? Using NLP. Mm-hmm. What do you think is going to happen now the pandemic? I'm, I mean, it's futurology and I, I get its prediction, but we're kind of in the middle of it. Wouldn't you say that this is only going to drive adoption even further of uh, going to more unstructured data, you know, whether it's with human scribes or, or NLP? Oh, absolutely. Uh, look, I think we, we we have very, very strong feedback, right? In the sense you said, you know, not not as in people getting upset. I said, those of people actually leaving the profession. Uh, mm-hmm. Having said, look, we we, we, you know, we have not done well, right? The, the deployment of EMRs in terms of the, just the documentation and the administrative requirements, right? From physician. And physician, they, they want to, you know, meet patients, talk to the patients and focus on the patients, right? And not spend another two hours, you know, typing on the computer, Right, uh, or, or even you know, during the encounter, right, spend half the time uh, writing, recording, and, and linking things, right, and, and, and filling structured data. Uh, and there are a number of companies now that already are, are working on it to have deployed solutions around, uh, like, yes, like you know, automated Skype in the sense that, yes, you, you can just talk to the patient, right, and uh, the system will not only uh, transcribe the call, right, because transcription. Uh, by itself is not what you're looking for, but for example, generate a soap note, right? So generate a clinically relevant summary, right? Um, or uh, automatically fill in, oh, here are the orders, right? So yeah, you just spoke with the patient for 20 minutes. Uh, yeah, 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 you ordered these two labs and these three, you know, these three prescriptions. And then as a doctor, you just go in and you, of course, you do need to check and validate it, right? And then kind of you, you, you click OK and it goes. Uh, so I think that, that definitely is the, the direction it will go to. And I think many many physicians will be yeah will be much much happier definitely compared to the current situation when when that happens. Yeah, instead of doing another fifty or hundred clicks to 
put in those orders that are obvious from the conversation. So if you can get all that data and context from the conversation and avoid all those steps, that is a, an extremely significant reduction in kind of useless labor, right? That, that is kind of duplication of effort. Yes, exactly. There's a lot of duplicated effort, yes. Uh, and the, the challenge is, uh, is twofold. Right? One is the NLP channels, right? Doing the translation, the summarization, uh, you know, understanding the context. Uh, and the other thing is, is uh, really even within the NLP space, the fact that really uh, uh, healthcare really is it's, its own language, right? So, so there's a reason why, you know, for example, I, I cannot go and work for, a, you know, an oncologist, right, or dentist uh, and automatic and be a scribe. Right, that's a that's a career path, right? It takes you know it takes several years until you actually understand the terms and understand what's important within context and how to actually summarize something. Uh, so, so another big challenge is uh, you know to 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 teach the machine learning deep learning model to actually do it correctly within a very very specific context. Yeah, that um must definitely most definitely hearing you speak, David. Um, my mind is going in a million different directions when you think about um the diversity of specialties, the diversity of patients, and the diversity of providers. Um, and how long does it take to ensure that a model's tuned and accurate? Um, and what things do you consider? Is that specific for each customer? Like, can you, you know, vary at a high level Talk us through that life training life cycle and 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 how you ensure that they're tuned and accurate in a very diverse world as we've talked about. Yep. Uh, yes. So so this is a very important point. Uh, one very important thing in healthcare is that yes, what what we have found is that in general, yes, you will need to tune models uh, really for for a specific provider. Uh, first of all, because there, there are many many specialties, right, and subspecialties. And, uh, you know, definitely you, you wouldn't want you, you know, you, you ophthalmologist, uh, you know, reading your radiology reports, right? It, it just really, they're completely different languages. Uh, um, uh, you know, they're not intended for, uh, you know, uh, regular people to understand. Uh, that's one thing. But the other thing, even within a specialty, uh, people practice medicine differently, right? So if someone is dealing, for example, with lung cancer, uh, you know, even within the same city, depending on what hospital you go to, people actually practice medicine differently, right? This is why you, you, know, you want second opinion, right? So, so there's, no, uh, there's no one way to treat people, right? Uh, uh, so, uh, so really, uh, for example, one of the things, one of the tools we, we've had recently, and this is a tool that uh, is used by, by, by clinicians, by medical doctors, is the, the annotation lab, uh, which is a, a no-code no environment uh, that's uh, intended to, uh, that were you able to, to load in uh, documents, you can annotate them, right, for entities, for relationship, for text classification, for summarization, uh, and then uh, the model uh, can automatically uh, either either train, right, or tune existing models. Uh, and uh, we see this uh, really this this kind of no-code solutions that do not require data scientists, right, that are intended for people or domain experts, uh, is really critical to scaling this technology uh, because, uh, as you know, with, with healthcare, really there's no uh, there are really no standards, right? Things are very, very localized, right? E even if you are, you know, even if you are a specialist, when you move to a new hospital, uh, you know, one of the things you learn is really how they practice medicine there, right? So the guidelines are different. The thing they care about testing, they care about uh, documenting uh, are different. Uh, so, so the models and, and the tools that support the models have to um, 
if to enable that. Yeah, and I like that you went to low-code, no-code. That's more in the direction of the tech in tech on tap. So that is interesting because, well, it, it's a direction that the industry seems to be going in. It's enabling more people to do more things because it's easier, as I said, for non-expert. So can we talk a little bit about what happens behind the scenes with the infrastructure, which is really what we care about the most of the, the data layer. Uh, this, I believe, is uh, deployed in a containerized environment. Is that accurate? Uh, yes. So the, the annotation lab, uh, and first of all, you mentioned, yes, it, it, at the end, when this scales, it, it has to be in a no-code solution. Uh, because if you say, yeah, that we need to tune a model really for, you know, for every hospital, right, every clinic, every use case, uh, you cannot do it with data scientists, right? I mean, they, they, those people just do not exist. It's not going to happen. Right, we don't have right? enough data scientists. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? So, they, you know, the, 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 the people do not exist. The, the timeline it requires does not work, right? The, the money it requires does not work. You have to have something that's much, much faster, cheaper, easier to use, scalable. Right, so so that's uh, that, that's almost a given. Uh, now, in terms of scale, yes, the, the way we we deploy the the tools, uh, yes, it's deployed as a kind of as a Kubernetes cluster, right? And you can deploy, you know, either on your own infrastructure, on the cloud, or, or wherever. Uh, and uh, importantly, uh, the, the multiple containers. And every time you start a kind of an automated job, it starts as its own container, right? So so uh, so let's say you you provided feedback to a model, and now the uh, you know the model needs to be uh, trained or the model needs to be tuned, or you just load a new set of EMR documents and you want to automatically pre-annotate them, right? So that the human doesn't you know, start from scratch, but starts from an annotate the document just needs to correct. So each one of those basically launches its own uh, container in the background uh, that then runs the job. And uh, that enables you to do you know, a couple of cool things. Uh, first of all, of course, it scales, right? So now if you have uh, you know, 50 people training models in parallel, that's, you know, that's not a problem. They can just do that. Right, even if you need, uh, some, if you have something that's very CPU intensive, right, or you need GPUs, all of that, it doesn't impact kind of the interactive work of, of the people using the tools. Uh, the second thing, it's it's very easy to scale, right. So if you come and say, okay, you, you know, you start with you know five people, that's fine. When you go to fifty or five hundred, you know, you can even just auto scale it, right, and that's you know just add containers uh, to do those jobs, uh, you know, as uh, really just uh, on a, as when you need them. So, so how do you do or your customers approach that issue of data security? You talk about these containers and, and you know, getting the EMR documentation in them and starting the annotation process. And um, let's talk about data security. And, you know, you've got now you've got PHI and yep. and you're processing it. So. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that, that, that's that's an important point. And yes, this this does definitely involve PHI. Uh, and of course, I mean, we, we do have the ability to de-identify, but, but very often people need to work with the PHI directly. Uh, 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 so for us, first of all, the, the way, I mean, the way we, we provide the software and believe it should be done, uh, it's not an as-a-service thing, so you do not send anything to us. Uh, but for us, all the software kind of, the, the way it works, we license it, uh, you install it on your own infrastructure, right? And, and most people do install it in the cloud, but then still it's, it's their cloud within the VPCs under their control. You know, if they do something on premise, that's fine as well. And then you, you know, it's it's under your security perimeter. Uh, if you, uh, you know, if you uh, if you have data residency laws, right? So the data has to stay, you know, in the UK, right? In Lebanon, in Singapore, you can deploy there. 
Uh, and then basically, uh, the software is designed from the ground up to, to work in an ergap environment. So the software, once you install it, does not need an internet connection. You can run it within completely shut of VPC, uh, the way many PHI systems uh, are, uh, uh, are designed. Uh, you do not send your data outside to anyone, not to us, not to anyone else. Uh, you know, the software does not call home. Uh, so really for us, uh, part of it is, is we uh, become, look, we'll work within whatever, within your security perimeter. Right, so whatever security controls, infrastructure control you have in place, that's where we'll install it. And the other thing is, of course, a lot of work went into just designing the software. So, so it really from the ground up, it's designed for an air gap environment, right? For for handling PHI data, uh, which which is of course something that's that's very hard to design after the fact if you don't start that way. So, with these containers, are you deploying using you know some sort of automation package or orchestration like a, a Kubernetes or you know something else? I mean, what are you using for the for the container piece? Ah, yes, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's all Kubernetes these days, uh, and uh, and yeah, so we we can provide you Helm charts, right? So you, it's it's you know really for I mean you know, for a DevOps person, kind of it's a one line install and it, and it runs, uh, and if you need to configure it for yourself because you have you know you have your own you know your own compute environment, right? Your own uh, you know your own storage, uh, you can just you know configure the YAML files, right, and then run the installation and do it that way. Uh, and uh, some people just use their own Kubernetes, uh, but also some people use uh, you know, their, their own AWS, for example, right? So they use uh, Amazon Kubernetes service, or they use Azure Kubernetes, uh, the Azure Kubernetes service. And also we've integrated and tested uh, uh, with those. Uh, so for example, uh, we have you know, a couple of large pharma companies and they, uh, you know, uh, one of them chose AWS, the other chose Azure. Uh, but the interesting thing, they also configure this uh, to be able to auto-scale. Right, so as, as new teams uh, or even new people within teams start new jobs, right, just new containers get created, right. So so it's a very uh, kind of if you're within that company, it's it's a very seamless uh, experience. So the containers themselves are ephemeral. What about the data sets? Like where are you storing those, and how are you connecting them to the containers for access? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the data sets, of course, they uh, uh, are, you know are not ephemeral, <laughs> uh, as well as the annotations themselves, right, because. Uh, the, the other thing that you have to be very careful about uh, when you're uh, training models or tuning models is, especially with healthcare, right, is, is to keep a full audit trail of who did what, right? Uh, because uh, people would, you know, patients or, you know, anyone really would rightfully want to know, oh, what, you know, why did this model make this decision? Why is this version of the model being deployed, right? Or, or which version of the model made this decision about these specific patients, you know, six months ago? Uh, so we, we need to store the data sets themselves. Uh, we need to store the annotations, we need to show the audit trail, and we need to show the uh, to store the model versions. Uh, and and really there are you know, a number of ways to do that, and that's really what, one of the benefits of Kubernetes is that there are different types of storage that you can fairly easily connect. Uh, so, so for us, really, it's, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, whatever you can kind of connect and think with Kubernetes, we, we, are, we are able to use, right? So, so it's a fairly... Uh, you know, so, so I'd say that there's good diversity on, on what people use for storage here. So as far as the models go, I would imagine that not every customer uses the same model. Um, how do you maintain those and keep those customized for each customer? Like, what, what are you doing with that? Uh, sure. So, uh, uh, yeah, of course, not, not every customer uses the same set of models. Uh, so for us, there's a set of, uh, I'd say, several thousand models that, that we own and we pre-train and we keep up to date. Uh, and we, uh, we release new version every two weeks, and part of it is updating the models, right? So new you know, new embeddings, new transformers, right? New uh, entity organizer, and so on. Uh, and and those kind of we version, right? And then we you know, people can update it uh, as they please. And then for the the models that someone trained internally on their own infrastructure, 
Uh, that stays with them, right? So that's part of the, the storage uh, capabilities kind of that, that, that come with the system. Uh, because I said, that's, that's private view, that's not shared. Uh, and I'm saying general, if you have the models that were trained with PHI or trained with PHI, uh, you know, they, they, there is a risk that they might contain PHI, so you don't want to export or share them, right? Uh, you know, j- just as they are. Uh, so for that, there's actually there is a uh, there is a model hub uh, that that's part of the annotation lab uh, that stores uh, and it's a bit of a misnomer. It stores both uh, it supports both models and rules, um, uh, and uh, this is what it does. So you know, there's a model hub. It points to the uh, storage uh, of all the models wherever you configured it uh, that can be locally with you. It uh, and it has all the metadata of you know, models that you downloaded from Johnson Labs, model that you trained yourself or tuned yourselves, uh, rule sets that you build yourself, right? If you want tools as well, uh, and then you have the ability, uh, you know, using this model lab, of course, you, you know, you can search and you know, uh, publish and so forth, and and you can uh, also download models or open them as an API. So, Lisa, from from your experience with the public sector customers, I would imagine that they have a very high level of concern for security. Um, what are some gaps that you see with this this approach for security? And, and, and then we'll go to David to kind of talk about how they approach, they, they cover those gaps. Um, thinking about, you know, the audit trail, thinking about just the overall understanding, and, and that's the healthcare industry in general. Um, from public sector um, to private sector, HIPAA um, being the regulation the specific to healthcare and protected health information, you know, that applies across all, all sectors. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of back up and make it very general to that PHI from how do you approach governance and compliance related to the data, um, who's seen it, who's touched it, who's used it, um, I think that would be a concern. I also think there's got to be a concern when you embed this technology into your process. And Esteban mentioned it when we began the call. If you choose to use NLP um, to capture your documentation, it becomes just as critical um, as the EMR itself. And so then you have to think about um, disaster recovery. You have to think about um, making this a, you know, 365 day a year application or that's always ready and always on. So when I think about the adoption um, and have had some couple conversations with doctors about NLP, these doctors use scribes and they seem to be skeptics of um NLP and in my experience. And so when I dive down to that, I I hear security. I hear that will it always be there reliable? Is it just another risk in a stack of technology that I'm already required to use every day? So, you know, that's a whole lot to unpack there. But David, I'd love to hear you know, specifically how you drive out skepticism from the physician community when it comes to um, security issues and even that business continuity subject. Yeah, so I would say, first of all, look, you're absolutely right. Those concerns are there and those concerns are real. 
right? Uh, because you, you do have to worry about security and, and compliance and uptime, right? And support and keeping things up to date. Uh, and and uh, you know, and, and 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 here's what you do, right? On one hand, of course, look, you have to, you know, you have to design the the software, right? And and design the integration and provide the support and make sure the uptime is actually there, right? And make sure the integrations work and things work. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, but uh, over time, I mean, doctors, I mean, you know, doctors are, are spec, you know, the the skeptic because they, you know, they've, they've seen things that come and do not work, you know, well uh, or as well as promised. Uh, so uh, I would say in many in many cases, really the, the the best cure is really is really just time, right? And I can tell you, for example, you know, we've been working with Kaiser Permanente now for over five years, right? We've been doing for over five years. Uh, I mean, those are public case study with others, you know, that that are not as public, uh, and uh, and it's always the same, right? First year it comes, say, well, you know, let's do a pilot. Let's say this is a beta program, or, you know, let, let's see how it goes. And then second year it comes, say, okay, let let's see how you know how twenty four seven support. Uh, works, right? Uh, and you know, and 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 they get more, they get more confidence that way. Uh, but really, a lot of it is, is you know, is when, when you build those things, right? Uh, to, to your point, Lisa, you can say all the right things, and you can do all the right things, and that helps to an extent. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, on the security side, uh, I, I can tell you, you know, what helps. We we've been audited by you know by by you know by, by McKesson, by Providence Health, right, and by. Uh, you know, by, by Pfizer and by, you know, Oracle and quite a few other things uh, that have security and compliance team that are, you know, bigger than a whole company, right? Uh, to look, you know, look at the code and look at vulnerability scans, right? And, and look at, uh, you know, uh, dependency analysis and pen testing, right? And, and uh, disaster recovery and backups, right? And they, they okay the product and then you deploy it. Uh, when you get to end users, they come and say, okay, fine. Let, you know, let's see how you're doing the first six months, uh, first year. Um, and uh, I think really a lot of where the skepticism goes away is really, really just with practice, right? You, you have to, you know, you have to show that you actually are secure, you actually are reliable, uh, that you have really, a, a, you know, third parties, right, who, who rely on you and have, have tested you, right, in terms of security, in terms of privacy, in terms of uptime, uh, you know, 24-7 support, as you say, you, you can claim you do it, but, you know, until they actually call you at 3 a.m. and you actually pick up and you actually resolve the issue, uh, right, there, there will always be some skepticism. So, so part of it is really just, I think, really just just doing the work and showing the result. And what about data sharing? Because obviously, this is a whole ecosystem, right? So we've talked about providers, we've talked about payers. I would imagine that in a totally integrated environment, like an IDN in the US, or some kind of socialized healthcare system like the NHS in the UK, or uh, whatever, like many others in the rest of the world where you can actually use the data from both sides, it works better. Is there some kind of workaround when the, the two sides are separate, you know, the payer and the provider side? Have you seen that? Not so much in the U.S. So, and look, this is what, one of the issues with the U.S. system that's, that's really, that's not a technology issue, right? So, yeah, if, if you look at the NHS, right, or, you know, or Israel or, you know, Norway or New Zealand, it kind of, it's obvious, Right, that you want to share all the clinical data about the patient, right? Because you know, if I'm a patient, if I go to a different hospital, a different doctor, of course, you want to have all my latest, you know, tests and prescriptions and right and, and summaries, and they need to be kept up to date in one place and shared. So whether I'm, you know, whether I have an emergency or do preventing preventive stuff, we want all, you know, it's all in the in one system. In the U.S., because the way of the the, the system is set up, right, between many many different really private companies and for-profit companies. Uh, there are many, many cases where, where there's really a strong business incentive or competitive incentive not to share. 
right? And, and that is really the challenge, right? Where, uh, you know, uh, in many cases, unless you make it legally required to, to be interoperable or share data, uh, people will just not want to do it. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, like, the, and there's, no, there's no technology solution to that one, right? That's, right. you know, that, that's a policy decision. So, David, this NLP, this, this solution, um, what's the use case on the payer side? Are they likewise taking the claims information, the coded information that they receive? And, you know, it's not uncommon for payers to ask for additional documentation to support a claim um, or prove medical necessity or whatever. So are they, is this a tool that you see payers having a use case for and starting to adopt as they evaluate risk from their perspective also? Yeah, so, so we see exactly, but you see several use cases with, with, with pairs on, I'm putting this to use. Uh, one is a lot of pairs are getting access to the, to the free text uh, records now, and to the, basically the entire EMR data. Uh, first of all, because they, they want to know how sick the patients are, Right, uh, because you know, if you're a pair, if you're essentially, if, you know, if you're in insurance, right, then the most important thing is, is to know really how much risk you're taking. Uh, right, so so knowing, uh, you know, uh, really how sick each each patient is, and really what needs to be done or the right things happening is is critical. And really, until now, you, you just couldn't afford to do it, right, because you couldn't have people go and manually read, uh, write the note for each patient. And now, in a sense, you can. Uh, another common use case is exactly what what you mentioned, which is. Uh, basically looking for, you know, really fraud, waste, and abuse, right? Where, you know, you get the claims, you come to look. Also, please send me the free text notes uh, because I want to see that the claims are, are correctly coded, right? And the things you've done actually have medical necessity. Uh, another uh, another use case that's related to this is around pre-authorization, right? So, uh, okay, you claim that this person needs, a, you know, needs an MRI and, and not, you know, not an X-ray, right? Or something cheaper. Uh, okay, please send me the notes and I'll I'll see if that's the case. Uh, and uh, uh, and in order to be able to do it quickly and cheaply, very often, really, you'd want to make the decision automatically, uh, because right now there's a lot of uh, rightful, you know, angst, right, because of, of delays or issues that are caused with, with pre-authorization. Uh, so if at least in most of the cases you can do this automatically, that's a uh, that's a big deal. Um, and another big use case that we are seeing, just uh, notice for pairs, also for really for for ACO and kind of risk-taking entities. Uh, is really just around patient risk adjustment, right? Because if you're, uh, uh, for example, if you're managing patients, or, you know, providing some of the government programs, uh, really, you, you, I mean, this has a direct revenue impact because you, you'll get paid according to the, the HCC grouping, right, for each patient. So basically, uh, you know, um, a, a risk score of how sick each patient is. And then really, you, you have every incentive commercially, uh, right, to be able to, to have, you know, to understand correctly uh, you know, what are all the comorbidities, right? All the all the past con- existing conditions, right? Or, uh, or other problems that e- each patient has, right? And that uh, and that has a revenue impact to you, right? Because if you show that you're treating sicker patients, you, you'll get the, uh, more basically to manage them. And there's uh, also, you know, if it's done well, there's also value to the patients because, and that's really the, the last use case we are seeing, uh, uh, you actually want to treat those patients, right? So, so if you let's say you want to have a preventive care program, right? So I want people who have you know calcification and you know around their heart to start taking statins, right? Or when people who are starting having you know like you know kidney issues, right? To to start looking at you know diet or other medications, right? Before they have full on you know kidney failure, your first question, okay, how do I find those people, 
right? Uh, and this is uh, uh, very often when NLP will be able to help you. It seems that we are in this ideal time in, at the intersection of a lot of things that maybe weren't available before. So the transition from fee-for-service to value-based care and the availability of not only NLP models, but the right compute and storage to make them practical. Also, the idea of containers to make them easily deployable and scalable up and down without having to put a bunch of infrastructure there that may, you may not be using. So it, it just seems like finally this all clicks. Is that your perception as well? Or have we not been realizing the benefits and this has been possible for a long time? No, I think this is very new. I think first of all, you're saying, first of all, as you mentioned, instead of storage infrastructure, container, really just the availability of you know having EMR data that is to, to integrate with it, that's a very new thing. NLP definitely you can do things that you couldn't do you know two or three years ago in terms of accuracy. Uh, so that 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 is a Only one year two thing or well. three years ago. I mean, like that recent then. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's the thing with, with uh, NLP. It's a it's a super exciting time. Uh, really, there, there there are things that we you know we we wrote papers on two years ago. We said, oh, this is new state of the art, right? We have this new architecture. We optimized it, and and, and now I can tell you, oh, we we move them we move them to open source. This is like two generations behind. Nobody uses this stuff anymore. Yeah, yeah. It's it, I mean, if you go to data science conferences, it, it, it's almost funny what what people call like legacy models. Okay, it's literally stuff that's two or three years old that most people have not heard about yet. It's a very, it's, it's, yeah, I've, I've, I've never been in this kind of industry before. It's, it's a very exciting time. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, but I, I would say, look, in healthcare, I would say we are still early on. Okay, uh, uh, this will take easily, you know, a decade or two to deploy, uh, really to get to a point where you know we can say, yeah, we kind of we've done it, right? So, so if we look at things like you know a BI or data warehousing, right, you can say, oh, that, that's already widely deployed. Basically, every hospital would have it, right? Or you know, EMR. Right, those are given. Uh, those new systems, I would say that it's it's the the exciting thing is it it's obvious to many people that this is possible now, right? And we know how to do it, and we have some you know case studies that are now they're not in academia, they're in industry, right? They're working, right? They're, they're in production, they're reliable, uh, but but it's still it's very much the early adopters. Uh, so I think we're very very early on, uh, and and kind of the tools are there, but getting to a point where you know we we. We educated everyone. We deployed everyone how to manage the scale. We have everything from the you know the the infrastructure side and the storage side, the the ML ops side, the responsible AI side, right? The, the clinical feedback, right? The, of course, the models themselves keep improving. It's you know it's going to be an exciting decade ahead of us. So it, it sounds to me like if we have listeners uh, anywhere talking to customers on the provider or payer side of healthcare. This is a message that needs to be spread because probably most people are not aware of where we're at and how exciting it is and how easy it is to deploy the whole thing together. And also, it, it sounds to me also that it's possible to get to uh, useful results, to, to things that can help both the financial side as well as the provider's uh, mental health very quickly, that this is not something that at this point, if you put it in takes a very long time. It sounds like, you know, no code or low code and you can pre, you know, you start with pre-trained models and then you adjust them for your dialects. And then all of a sudden you get results, right? It's not, it's not a very long 
uh, cycle. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yes. And this is really for me, that's, that's you know, what I'm trying to run around and explain to everyone else. Like, look, this is here and it works and it's ready. And you can talk to the first few, you know, of course, like not me, but people, you know, in, in healthcare systems, right, in pills that are actually using this, uh, right? And they can tell you what works for them and what doesn't. Uh, yeah, and I think definitely if people are now talking to, yes, talk, talking to peers, uh, talking to providers in this space, uh, I think it's you know, really now is the time to really, you, you can go, you can implement this, uh, there's money to be made, there, there, you know, lives to be extended and improved. Uh, absolutely. I would imagine that these risk factors get used in charging premiums for, for certain insurance companies, right? So go, going on the, the idea of accuracy, what do you say to people that are concerned that you know the AI models might cause price increases for things that maybe they shouldn't? Like, How accurate can you say these things are to kind of keep people's nerves at bay with this sort of idea that you know, your, your costs are now being controlled by a computer? Uh, sure. So look, first of all, one thing to say and is that the models are definitely not perfect, right? And the models make mistakes. Okay, so, so that is true. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if you look at the, the current way people do this, right? So, so the, the current way people do this, they, for example, they only use structured data, right? So, uh, and they generate reports, right? And they send this, for example, to Medicare. It does, we already know, those are like 30 to 50% accurate, right? So, so you can't basically wait, wait, wait. say- You're saying that the state of the art, not using AI or NLP is 30 to 50% accuracy. That's what we got. So right now, so, so let's say you're looking to find the, the major comorbidities. So, so let's say you work from the structured data in the EMR. So you use problem lists, right? You use, uh, and let's say you use claims, okay? Uh, and uh, if you look at studies, and this, these are not NP studies, these are you know, really kind of EMR, right? Utilization effectiveness studies. Uh, so, you know, problem lists are, are, are very much lacking in practice, right? So when people audit problem lists, they say, yes, like, you know, problem list, Typically, at least, uh, yeah, anywhere from like, you know, 20, 30, maybe 50% of the actual current problems of a patient in terms of accuracy, right? If you look at claims, uh, claims very often you, you're not willing, uh, really to see the problems because, you know, I, I may go to a doctor and say, oh, I'm, you know, I have this problem, this problem, this problem, this problem, this problem, uh, uh, but the, 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 the billing code is going to be, uh, you know, office visit, right? It's not going to talk any, about any of my actual problems. Right, uh, so uh, so a lot of the girls come say if there are issues, right? So let's say you know, and, and a lot of the chronic issues, you know, could be you know, uh, uh, you know, depression, right? Cholesterol, diabetes, obesity, smoking, all of those issues don't be in unstructured data. Um, there, uh, uh, in terms of controlling accuracy, uh, I, I think basically yes, it's not be perfect, but you'll go to a higher level of accuracy definitely. Uh, what you do, you do need, uh, and, and that's part of it. Use part of tuning the model. Uh, you, you also, you, you build a test set, right? It's manually reviewed and you, you evaluate your accuracy around it, uh, against it. Uh, so that first of all, so you know what your accuracy is and you know that you're, you're not doing something you shouldn't. That's one thing. Uh, the other reason to do it is also to control biases, right? So it's not enough to say you're 90% accurate. You have to be 90% accurate for men and 90% accurate for women and 90% accurate for adults and for children and for uh, you know, uh, by, you know, race, ethnicity uh, as well. Uh, so definitely, uh, there are definitely kind of best practices on how you measure and control it. Uh, uh, but what I would say, uh, you know, other than kind of recognizing, yes, the, the imperfections here, there are definitely ways and best practices to actually measure how well you're doing and know that you are improving things. 
So yeah, I think it's the same kind of idea as the self-driving car concept, right? So people are really worried about self-driving cars hitting people and you know killing people, and for good reason, right? I mean, there's there's it's a new technology and these things have happened, but then you start to look at the statistics for people driving on their own. <laughs> and exactly. Like, oh wait a minute, that's we're way worse at this than AI is. Yeah, precisely. Exactly. And and what you do, you you start with the use cases that are less dangerous. Right and and actually the 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 financial use cases are less dangerous actually, right? You can do you know because you can kind of say look you can audit me for example you can say look I know I'm ninety percent accurate and I can show you the numbers right the data is everything if you audit me it's, it's going to be around ninety percent uh, which is going to be a better audit than all of your other audits right on on structured data right so that, that's one thing uh, the the second uh, level of use cases uh, are are really trying to to reach out patients to reach patients. Right, so uh, let's say we have a patient; they need to be on a beta blocker, right, because the risk, and and they're not. Okay, so this is not a financial use case. This is like this will, uh, you know, with with good likelihood actually, uh, uh, you know, uh, extend someone's lives, right, or you know, prevent a heart attack, potentially. Uh, then what you do, uh, uh, what 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 you want the system to automatically, more is not automatically, of course, you know, prescribe is send a message to the doctor, right? Uh, uh, but that's. Uh, uh, that's regardless, that's the right thing to do, right? Because if someone is managing, for example, if you're managing diabetes, uh, I'm not helping you by giving you a prescription, right? You should talk to you know, a doctor, right? Or a dietitian or a clinician and talk about everything, right? Talk about uh, you know, lifestyle and what you eat and, and how you exercise and medication, right? So, uh, uh, and then uh, that gives you, of course, the, the human review, right? So if the doctor sees it, come and say, oh, no, like, you know, this is just not relevant, then we can just provide that feedback and we move on. Yeah, it's you know it's a mix of human ego, hubris, and then a little bit of distrust, right? <laughs> we we uh, want yeah, to exactly. think that we, we want to think that we're the smartest, and but you know, in reality, uh, we're, we're we're designing the AI models. Oh yeah, exactly. And and just uh, no, and I agree with you. People are designing AI models. AI models make mistakes, definitely. Uh, and uh, and uh, and look, and for me, that there's uh, I, I like some of the skepticism, right? Because because I know that there's right, it's it's a safeguard. Right when you go and implement things, right, and, and we we are so early on in this industry that, that, that there's value to the safeguards. Absolutely, Lisa, I asked you a question in the chat, but can we ask the baby a question for comic relief? <laughs> well, she would comment, but she's busy taking a bottle. Oh, okay. Well, we won't okay. disturb her. She is super excited about the possibility of data and natural language processing and the impact it's going to have on her life. Okay. Well, she's a data scientist. We'll get her. Absolutely. Exactly. I, I, I text your mom and I, I said, you'd be surprised what we just exposed your child to. She's brilliant. Exactly. <laughs> she's already designing the AI models as she d- enjoys the bottle. Isn't she? You know, one day she will. Some, some, someone's got to do it. That's right. Someone has to. Yep. All right. Uh, Esteban, David, Lisa, sounds like we got a lot to think about here with natural language processing and the way it impacts insurance providers and payers and that sort of thing. So again, uh, David, if we wanted to reach you, how do we do that? My email is david at johnsnowlabs.com. And I'm also reachable on LinkedIn. Just search David Talby and uh, please feel free to connect or message me there. Is there anywhere we can find more information about the work you guys are doing? Uh, definitely the, the easiest place is www.johnsnowlabs.com and there's information there about you know, the, the case studies, uh, the customers and, and the solutions we provide and you can also schedule time to talk to us. 
All right, excellent. Uh, Esteban, how do we reach you? I'm at esteban.rubens at netapp.com. And uh, if uh, anyone is interested, do, doing a search for NetApp NLP will take you to a landing page that we have describing some of the things that we do on the data layer to support NLP and uh, users and, and researchers, as well as people who deploy it. And that will tie into our uh, Astra persistent storage for containers that clearly plays a role into this, as well as our cloud story and data fabric. So it's really all tied together very nicely in this use case. All right. And last but not least, Lisa. I am lisa.hines at netapp.com. And um, Esteban has done a great job of directing you to all the resources that I think are relevant to this conversation. All right. We'll also include those in our blog that we have accompanying the show. And uh, if you have any questions, you can always reach us at podcast.netup.com. All right. That music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast.netup.com or send us a tweet at NetUp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or via TechOnTapPodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank David Talby of John Snow Labs and Esteban Rubens and Lisa Hines of NetApp for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah.